Calling all benders and non-benders alike. Jump into the epic world of Avatar with your favorite podcast, Avatar, Braving the Elements. Hosted by me, Janet Varney. And me, Dante Bosco. Each week we'll recap and discuss a new episode. So come join us and our amazing guests from creators to cast to superfans to chat about all things Avatarverse. It's Fire Nation time. Book of Fire. Let's go. Listen to Avatar Braving the Elements wherever you get your podcasts. The Last Kids on Earth and their superhero alter egos are back in the latest installment of the graphic novel spinoff series, The Last Comics on Earth, Too Many Villains. Jack, June, Quint, and Dirk face their biggest challenge yet, creating the sequel to their hit graphic novel in a mad dash, puzzle-filled race across Apocalyptia to stop the biggest evil plan in history. Hey, you know what the creators of Last Comics on Earth's evil plan is? Make me and my kids love these books. Seriously, my younger kid is a huge fan of both the Last Kid series and the Last Comic series. It's true. And now I'm hooked too. The whole team has created a delightful cast of characters with some fantastic kid-friendly art throughout that will appeal to readers of all ages. Buy your copy of The Last Comics on Earth in stores today. You can also visit lastkidsonearth.com to learn more. Hey everybody, how's it going here at Keystone Comic Con? Good? Yeah? All right, Friday night. This is how we do it, Friday night talking about the X-Men. Very exciting. Uh, my name is Alex. I'm the host of Comic Book Club, a live talk show in New York that's every Tuesday. Very excited, though, to be in Philadelphia to talk to these two gentlemen, Rick Leonardi and Bob McLeod. Let's give them a big round of applause. This isn't X-Men related, but how's your con been so far? How are things going for you guys? How are you feeling? Pleasantly surprised. It's doing very well. A lot of nice people coming up and uh, either just talking or buying a sketch or or whatever. It's been a good show so far for me. Yeah. Rick, how about you? Uh, The test for me is whether whether I, I do silly sketches. And so far, all the sketches have been... On point. No sillies. <laughs> Excellent. I love it. Uh, well, let's talk about the X-Men. Uh, both of you came in on seminal points in the X-Men's run, uh, f- various parts of the franchise. How did you get involved? What was your first view on it? What was your first thought when you started on X-Men day one, if you can remember? Should I go first? You want to go first? <laughs> Um, I actually started because Jim Sherman, uh, another artist, w- had started X-Men 151. And I don't know the reason why, but for whatever reason, he started laying out some pages and then left the book. I don't know if he got ill or uh, had to leave town because of a book he was after him or, or what. I don't know. But they asked me to take over penciling that issue. And I had only penciled a few fill-in issues for Marvel up to that point, um, but I'd done a lot of inking, but penciling, I had only penciled a, uh, an issue here or there as, as fill-in artist, so they wanted me to fill in on the uh, this issue of the X-Men, uh, so I did. I took Jim's layouts and uh, kept some of them, threw out some of them, changed a lot of it over to my style, and um, that was... Only a few of the pages, and then he kind of just did panels here and there, and then it dis- disappeared. So I had to uh, pretty much draw half the book uh, myself, um, and then I inked the last two pages, actually. And they like what I did on that issue, so they invited me to do the next issue as well, X-Men 152. Um, I don't know if any of you saw that issue. That's where Storm uh, and the White Queen switch bodies. It's a very interesting yeah. uh, storyline. And um, had a great time doing that. And uh, again, they liked what I did on that issue. I think uh, Dave Cockrum had just left the series, maybe, is why I was doing these fill-ins. They needed a new regular penciler. And they actually offered uh, me the book. They said, uh, would you like to stay on as regular penciler on the X-Men? And I said, yeah. (laughs) Sounds good to me. And then they said, what? But also, we have this spinoff we're thinking of doing of uh, a younger team of X-Men. And you could be co-creator on that book uh, if you wanted to um, 
do that instead. And that ended up being the New Mutants. And I obviously chose that. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was, uh, Rick, we'll get to you in a second, but I'm curious, what was it in particular that turned you uh, towards the New Mutants, this raw idea versus the X-Men, which was a little more established? Yeah, I really wanted to draw the X-Men. The X-Men was obviously the X-Men, and um, it, it's, fun, it's a fun book to draw, always has been. Um, so I was very excited to, to be uh, considered for the X-Men. But then again, how often would I get uh, offered a chance to be co-creator on a new series? And you got to remember, at the time, I didn't know if Mutants was going to just go in the toilet, if it was going to totally fail, um, nobody would care about it at all, or if it was going to be a big success. I, I didn't have a clue. And this was at the 1982, kind of at the beginnings of the fan market, and so there wasn't a lot of feedback from the fans right off the bat um, to give me any kind of idea of what I was getting myself into. But still, I mean, I, I just chose it for the fact that I could be co-creator. Yeah, well, that worked out okay. Uh, Rick, what about you? What drew you to the X-Men initially? Uh, well, the um, so I was... Working away on um, Cloak and Dagger, I think it was the second iteration of Cloak and Dagger, uh, which at that point was a bi-monthly book, but I was also going to school on the side without necessarily telling anybody that's what I was doing, so I was kind of chronically behind on schedule, and, and at some point, well, to be precise, about issue five or so, uh, <laughs> Carl Potts had had enough of my stuff. So uh, he, he kicked me off a of cloak and dagger. Um, and then the very next day, I got a phone call from Ann Nocenti to do X-Men 201. So X-Men was your demotion for doing a bad job on cloak and dagger. Something like that, yeah. Okay. I, th I think that the, the actual senior team, John Romita, Chris Claremont, and all those guys had just... For issue 200, that was the, the excursion to France. So I think that whole team, in fact, had it, all those, those real body guys had actually gone to France to do research, research, and they were still recovering. So 201 was, uh, 201 was uh, an orphan book, really, kind of. Who knew that the baby that appears in issue 201 was going to be, you know, Cable later in life, so... That book shows up getting autographed quite frequently now. Uh, one of the other big contributions I think you put into the X-Men mythos was Genosha, the island of Genosha. Uh, when you're doing something like that as an artist, when you're tackling a whole society, where do you even start? Where does the germ of that come? Well, that was that, that's another interesting thing that happened about, I don't know when it started, but it, it contacted me. It sort of swept over into my world about 86 or 87, which is when the Marvel decided to go to the 15-issue series, 15-issue per year um, set up for X-Men. They were doubling up in the summer. So in the months, June, July, August, um, they needed, they had no choice but to, but to rope in fill-ins. So yeah, the first I the first I heard of Genosha and that whole um, that whole idea that Chris Claremont was hatching was as a result of being dragged in to cover Mark Silvestri, who was otherwise engaged. Um, yeah, that, uh, to be honest with you, it wasn't that hard. I mean, all you had to do was I mean, it was these this is before Google, but luckily there was a library down the street, so you know I marched off and read everything I could on South Africa. John Hoffmeyer and all that stuff and the apartheid regime it was pretty easy just to lift it pretty much verbatim. Um, by the way, we are going to get to your guys' questions in a little bit, so start thinking about those. When it comes time for that, I'll come out to you guys in the audience with this here microphone. But one of the most frequent debates in X-Men fandom that I'm curious to get your guys' take on is uniform costumes or non-uniform costumes. Which side do you fall on? Uh, well, that was a big issue with the New Mutants. Yeah. We had to decide whether they'd have individual costumes or school uniforms. Uh, with the X-Men, they were um, so... Uh, the new, the new X-Men I'm talking about with uh, 
Storm and Wolverine and all those as opposed to the original X-Men. The new X-Men, I, I thought, were so varied that they worked better with individual costumes. Um, the original X-Men with Iceman and the Angel and, and all those guys, um, they seem to be uh, less of individual personalities to me at, at the time anyway. So I was, I was cool with them having um, just regular X-Men you know, like uniforms, the black and yellow stuff. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things that, that Chris kind of brought along was this whole idea of the X-Men as, as, a, as a squad, as an almost military squad. They, they would, each one had, had, each character in the X-Men, you know, contributed to the, to the, the teamwork and the actual, you know, the attack, if, if you will. But each individual had had his or her own his or her own MOS her her specialty, and I think um, if you if you look at the way that he dealt that he wrote, um, especially the team on team action scenes, um, you could tell that he was thinking in terms of well this character works best at long ranges this is the close in character this is the this is this is your assault character and this is your follow up character. So you know there were there were definitely plays involved in the way he he staged his fight scenes, and it only made sense therefore that uh, per each character's specialty there would be specialty costumes that would, would amplify and reinforce what that character was all about. Was there or is there a costume in particular that you're drawn to, and one that you just absolutely loathe drawing? <laughs> I love. Uh, uh, Storm's costume, the black and white costume, um, the Dave Cockrum design. Um, she's one of the uh, my characters. It's my favorite to to do for sketches at conventions because of the, her costume and her her little head thing. Yeah, um, and the white hair is just very dramatic against the black costume. So it's great. Um, I don't I don't think I hate any of them. Of uh, Colossus, right? It's the worst with the stripes and everything. Okay. Yeah. Right? There you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Colossus is probably my least favorite to draw. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, uh, in fact, though, if, if, if you, the, the striations, you're talking about the, 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 the metal striations in his body. Yeah. You get done properly, those, those stri- striations will help you model the form a lot. They actually turn the form. It's a, it's a, it's a drawing assist, if, if, you, if you look at it that way. Interesting. Um, let's go to you guys for your questions. Raise your hand. I'll come out to you. Ask anything for these folks, anything about their history with the X-Men, their time drawing the X-Men, anything like that. Does anybody have anything? Nobody? You, sir, right there. I'll come out to you. What is your name and what is your question? Uh, my name is Sean. Uh, I was a big fan of the X-Men in the 80s. And just in terms of your relationship with the writers, which, which writers did you really enjoy write, drawing the work of? And why? Um, the only writer I worked with was Chris, uh, Chris Claremont. And Chris would give you very uh, complete plots rather than full scripts, right? So the, the final dialogue wasn't necessarily there, but the story, uh, he would give you in, in plot form, and he always gave you way too much story to fit into a 20-page comic. So there was a lot of editing involved. You had to take out stuff because there just wasn't room to get it in the comic. Um, and so I talked to Chris about that, and he said he was fine with me editing stuff out. He'd rather give me too much than too little. Um, he didn't have a problem with it. Um, Chris gave me a compliment, actually. He told me he was surprised because I started out as an inker and switched over to penciling, and he was surprised that I could do storytelling <laughs> because most inkers uh, didn't study visual storytelling and were weak in that area. So he was pleasantly surprised when we started working together. Um, I always got along well with Chris, still do. You know, we still uh, see each other a lot um, at conventions. I haven't worked with him too recently. I did a X-Men comic a couple years ago with him, uh, X-Men Gold number one. 
Um, he writes more than I would prefer. You know, puts more dialogue balloons in the panels than I would prefer. He likes to like sprinkle them around the panel, so there's a lot of little separate little balloons, which to me uh, covers up too much of the art. Um, you know, but he's obviously a very good writer. I enjoy his stories. I think he's got an incredible imagination. Um, one thing that bothers me is um, he likes to place the balloons. And a lot of times he'll put them at the bottom of the panels. And I don't like balloons at the bottom of the panels. It's like a helium balloon that's lost its helium, you know? So I like the balloons up near the top of the panels. Um, but he and I disagree on that, so... <laughs> Rick, what about you? Well, I likewise, I've only worked, as far as the X-Men are concerned, and then the New Mutants as well, um, with Chris Claremont. So, um, yeah, he, uh, exactly right. I mean, he, he, gives you, he gives you full plots, but he, what, he, what he does do is he, he trusts you enough to give you the backstory, why things are happening. Um, you will uh, occasionally encounter writers who only tell you exactly what they think you need to know. This, you know, character character go, walks from left to right. Character opens door. Character, not why they're doing it. You know, not what it's all about. Not, not you don't get any taste of motivation or anything like that. And a lot of that, you know, when that when you bump into writers like that, a lot of times they're motivated out of a kind of defensiveness. They don't want the penciler knowing too much so that the penciler starts to play and kibitz and interfere. So a lot of times we're treated like mushrooms. We're kept in the dark. And so um, Chris, by contrast, is, is very generous with all of the stuff that's bubbling in the back of his mind. And you have to kind of wade through it. But it gives you a deeper understanding of what's happening in terms of the characters and why the characters are doing what they're doing. He actually feeds off what you give him. Exactly. Yeah, so he's, uh, he's a real pleasure to work with. He, he makes you work, it's true. Um, and I learned, I, don't, I think I learned more working on Claremont plots about how to make panels do double duty and triple duty. It's like, yes, Storm is smacking this person in the head. But in the background, you'll see Wolverine also talking on the phone. You know, that kind of thing. Um, so, uh, yeah, he, 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 makes you, he makes you work very efficiently and, and uh, you know, keeps you, keeps you honest. This is veering away from... He paid, he paid a terrible price for it, but... Oh. Uh, the, this is veering away from X-Men a little bit, but just because you're talking about the way that Chris Claremont writes very densely with the plot and everything... Do you find you prefer that take on writing when you're going in and penciling something or the Marvel style where it's just the rough outline of what's going to happen, the issue, and you fill in the rest? What's, what's your preference there? Well, every writer at Marvel had their own version of the Marvel style. So there was a Stan Lee version where he would say, have Galactus fight uh, the FF this issue. Go to it. And that would be it. And then... There's Chris Claremont, who gives you so much. Um, and there's, everybody was a little bit different. It wasn't like they all did a, the plots the same way. But as a penciler, um, I always preferred a plot over a full script because it, I could get more involved in it. I could, I could be the director and, and instead of having just to draw a close-up when the writer wants me to draw a close-up. I could decide how many panels to put on a page or... How to, how to move the camera around and, and be an equal partner in the storytelling. They're much more fun. There's also, uh, if you're working with a full script, at least this is speaking personally, when I, when I work with somebody who's very directive, um, I tend to waste a lot of time thinking about all the ways that the guy is wrong. You know, I, I, all the ways that this could be better or should be better and will be better once I, you know, jump in and, you know, take my, take my prerogatives. But there's time lost in, in overcoming, you know, in, in kind of nursing your own ego versus the ego of the writer. And it's just wasted time. 
Better, so would, better just to stand out of the way and let me do my thing. <laughs> would you go against the writer on a full script? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. All the time. Can you think of an instance of that? Uh, <laughs> well, I, you know, I've massaged an awful lot of plots. Um, I'm not going to name names or anything like that. It, it's fine. It's not getting out of here. Other than the podcast we're recording. But otherwise, it won't go anywhere. It's all good. No, you don't need to name names. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I'm working, on, I'm working on Batman Beyond right now, and there's this stuff that's happening, and I'm like, what? <laughs> you have these kind of what moments, and, and you have to make the best of them. You have to find a way to make them work. And cool. Too much of it, and you start, to, you start to suspect that the team is somehow seriously <laughs> defective. But. Uh-huh. Let's go back to the crowd. Uh, ooh, so uh, this hand shoot up right here. What's your name? What's your question? Hi, my name is Marcy. I was just curious, how do you go from being someone that draws in your room to drawing for Marvel? You get the call one day, right? Yeah, You're in yeah, your room. Yeah. And then it just happens. No, that's, but kidding. I mean, that's a long story with me. Um, we, we've got time, I guess. I, since I was five years old, I decided I was going to be some kind of cartoonist. I, was, I had my mind made up I was going to be an artist when I grew up. So it took me a while, but I went to art school, I went to uh, college, majored in art, and I quit both of those because they weren't teaching cartooning. They were trying to teach you commercial art or fine art, and I wanted to be some kind of cartoonist. So finally, at age uh, 24, I decided it was time to start my career. And I'm from Tampa, Florida. I moved up to New York because at the time, in 1974, you had to be in Manhattan to work in the business. But that's where the publishers were, and you had to go to them to get a job. So I sold my car to finance a trip to New York to start my career, to have money you know, to, to finance this trip, and um, got rejected at Marvel, got rejected at DC. DC, uh, the art director at the time was Joe Orlando, and he actually told me I needed to go back to school and learn how to draw, which was quite a blow because, of course, growing up, your family and friends are always telling you how great you are, you know? <laughs> So that was the first time I had seriously, I mean, I had some criticism in school, but even, even my teachers in school were telling me, uh, you know, that I was doing very well. Uh, one teacher told me I did either the best design in class or the worst, because I didn't really get design at the time. <laughs> but um, that, when Dorlando told me that, I was, you know, confused, because I knew I could draw. Why couldn't I draw the way he thought I needed to be drawing? So, yeah, well, what was the secret was I was all surface. I was just drawing the way every kid draws, um, just working on the surface and kind of doing an outline and everything. I wasn't building a structure for my figures um, in a three-dimensional way. Um, so I had to, and he didn't, I mean, he, he did a little example for me, but I didn't really understand it. Um, I just had to puzzle it out, looking at other artists, and slowly uh, figure out how, how you do this. Um, and it took me five years of really studying and doing sample pages and practicing before I got to um, where I was actually, I felt I was good at it, and other people were telling me that I was good at it. Um, but I started actually Finally, after getting rejected and rejected and rejected, I met Neil Adams, who at the time was the top artist in the business uh, in terms of respect. He was, he was like um, uh, this far above everybody else. And he just uh, said, well, what do you want? He looked at my pathetic little samples and said, what do you want? And um, I said, just anything that pays. I was um, down to my last $10, going to call my parents to give me bus money to go back to Tampa. And I said, just anything that pays. <laughs> and so he picked up the phone and got me a job in the production department at Marvel Comics doing lettering corrections. He said, I've, I've got a guy here with some lettering potential, some art potential, but uh, you know, some good lettering potential. 
So I got a job in the production department doing lettering uh, corrections and was taught how to do comic book lettering by the Marvel letterers, the ones that created all the logos for the comics. And um, my very first job was actually taping the page numbers onto the original art pages in Marvel. So I, I figure I started rock bottom and worked my way up. Um, letter and corrections, worked my way up to art corrections. And the great thing about being in the production department was I met all the editors, um, and I could show them my work every day. So I was just constantly getting feedback on my samples, and eventually uh, was able to go freelance about six months later as an inker. Rick, what about you? Uh, so I, I graduated. I always wanted to be a uh, comic book guy. So it was either that or, or, or Disney-type animation. So... So I got out of college, and I put together, uh, I wrote a story, it was a Spider-Man story, um, in which we, I actually killed Spider-Man, which is an idea that came back very much later. But uh, I wrote it, I penciled it, I inked it, I put on my own word balloons, and this is, this is back before Kinko's and all that kind of stuff, so, oh, it was 20. One, two, something like that. Like I say, I just got out of out of college, and and uh, this is 1979. So um, so I did all all these originals were on these enormous Bristol boards, you know, twice up size, of the the boards that you see on our tables upstairs. Um, and at the time, there wasn't any, you know, like I say, no kinkos, no way to, to quick, quickly and easily blow those down to uh, a more manageable size. So I used photomechanical transfer, which was state of the art at the time, to, uh, to bring these enormous boards down to 8.5 by 11, which I thought was a nice mailable size for a, a submission to send, to send off to New York, which is what I did. This was about November-ish of 1979 when the thing was finally done. Time went by without any response. Um, <clears throat> ultimately, I got uh, a thing back from DC with some vellum sheets over a few of the selected pages with some, some little pencil corrections or suggestions, and basically a, a note to the effect that I should try again. You know, Do you know who did those? Probably Joe Orlando. Yeah. Probably, yeah. Um, However, nothing from Marvel, and Marvel was the Marvel was the place I really wanted to land. DC was nice, but Marvel, come on, that's the bigs. So finally, in January, so it's January nineteen eighty, January of nineteen eighty, I go down. I finally just go down. I pound on the door. I get in through reception. I goes, "Where are my submissions? I, you know, if you're not going to hire me, that's great, but you know, give me my stuff back." And it turns out that, uh, as Shooter patiently explained to me, that I, in, in asking them to evaluate me as a penciler, I had not, in fact, sent them any pencils. I had sent them inked over pencils or pencils covered over by balloons or pencils that were way too small to read. And so, duh, you know, I'm not going to get hired as a penciler on the strength of a submission like that. However... The writing was weird enough that I might make it as a writer. And in consequence of that, he had shipped the, my submission off to Archie Goodwin. And Archie Goodwin, in contrast to Shooter at the time, was a very disorganized fellow, wonderful editor, but disorganized. So it had been, it had been lying on his, my submission had been lying on his desk for months um, without any response, so it was. It was that was the story. Uh, what Shooter recommended I do is go home, do two or three sketchbook pages of just basic anatomy in pencil, please, and then come back. And that's what I did. So, so like I said, they just kind of call you one day, and it happens, and that's it. Uh, let's get more questions from you guys. Ooh, there's a hand from Hellboy right over here. Actual boy, hell boy. Um, what is your name? What's your question? Um, my name is Felix, and I was wondering, uh, what's your favorite story that you've done? Great question. What's your favorite story that you've done? Wow. 
And once you choose this, the rest of them cease to exist. So, sorry about that. Well, I'm going to have to cheat um, and say that uh, in terms of favorite jobs, in terms of inking, for example, things that I penciled and favorite inked jobs is a New Mutants uh, episode that Bill Sankevich inked. Beautiful, just amazing stuff. So, in terms of inking, that New Mutants, I think it's number 78 or something like that. In terms of concept, my favorite is the Watson and Holmes stuff. I mean, in terms of just a, an absolutely drop-dead great idea, why didn't anybody think of this sooner, Watson and Holmes? Do you want to, for those in the audience who aren't familiar with it, do you want to just explain oh, what the um, idea is? Yeah, it's, it's Watson and Holmes, only they're two, they're two dudes from Harlem. You know, it's, it's, that's just as simple as it gets. They're solving crimes. They're using all those, all that, all that deductive talent. Um, but it's like it's now. It's American. It's urban. Whatever you want urban to stand for in this context. But um, great characters and great writing. And um, I wish we'd done more with it. Got an Eisner nom. So yay. Yeah, there you go. Um, Carl Ballers. Right. The, the original concept came from um, Brandon Par- Perlow and a buddy of his. But I um, mean, you know, they just said that. I guess they just sat down one day and said, "You know what? Let's do Sherlock Holmes only." But I think they, frankly, I think they may have scared themselves in as much as they got into Sherlock Holmes and realized that that's an enormous franchise. That's a really well-established community and uh, may in fact I would argue is, is probably the biggest franchise in English literature in terms of breadth of exploitation across platforms I mean yes you can talk you can do Robin Hood if you like or King Arthur but I think you know I think Sherlock Holmes supports so much of, of, of literature and has spun off so many you know, descendants. If you if you dig hard enough, I mean, DC Comics for crying out loud. What's the DC stand for? Come on, come on, work with me. <laughs> uh, that, how many people know what DC stands for anymore? Who, who knows? Anybody? All right, ten people. David <laughs> uh, Chase. <laughs> There you go. It took me a little while, but I got there. Uh, just real quick before we get to your answer, I do want to mention that that book, that uh, Watson and Holmes book, is great, and you guys should definitely seek it out. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I don't know if you have any copies at your booth or anything like that. All right, well, comb the stacks here at Keystone Comic Con and check it out because the book's a blast. Um, what was your answer? What was your favorite thing that you did, Bob? You know, it's a, it's a tougher question than you think because you like different jobs for different reasons. So you, this might be your favorite for this reason, this is your favorite for that reason, this is your favorite for that reason. And as, a, as an artist, as opposed to a writer, to me it's, it's just, it's all about the art. So um, I couldn't even read comics that had art that I didn't like, no matter how good the story was. So the ones I worked on... Right with you, man. Yeah. <laughs> the ones I worked on... Um, as far as fun to draw, uh, that issue that I mentioned before, X-Men 152, where the, uh, the White Queen and, and Storm switch bodies was a lot of fun to draw. Um, the, X, the New Mutants stuff that I worked on uh, was harder. Uh, there was a lot of stuff going on there. Um, I, I just look back on that as it was a harder job. Um, and then... When I was a kid, I read mostly Superman comics, and uh, when I actually got to draw Superman for my job, it was kind of like an honor because I had read it as a kid. Um, and so I really enjoyed working on Superman comics, even though he, in a lot of people's opinion, isn't the coolest superhero around. Uh, a lot of people think he's old-fashioned and, and just uh, hasn't, hasn't kept up. He's conservative. <laughs> yeah. By definition. But I liked all the secondary characters. Uh, Superman was fine, but I've always just enjoyed drawing people. 
Uh, I originally wanted to be a, a caricaturist for Mad Magazine. It was my original goal. I was not that big into superhero comics. I'm, I'm still not. I mean, I, they're fun. I like them. But if I had, if I could draw whatever I wanted, it wouldn't be superheroes. I went to superheroes because that's where the work was. Um, but I like drawing uh, Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen and Perry White and all the secondary characters. Uh, so I really enjoyed Superman. And there was, if I have to pick one story, there was a story where he went uh, back in time uh, to the dinosaurs. Uh, so I got to draw dinosaurs. So that was fun. <laughs> Uh, I'm curious, and we'll get back to your guys' questions in a second, talking about something like Superman versus something like X-Men, do you have a preference when you're hitting a solo book where it's going to be the same character page after page after page, or say something like the X-Men where sometimes there's 20, 30, an overwhelming number of characters in every issue? I mean, a lot of, a lot of artists don't like to draw group books because you got eight characters to draw and and sometimes in this one panel instead of just Superman. To me, it, it never really was an issue with me when I was drawing the New Mutants or the X-Men. Um, I mean, I, I was still, I was just solving problems. Where do I put this person? Where do I put this thing? How do I construct this panel? Um, so if I just had one character, that just might mean I had to draw a lot more backgrounds. <laughs> you know, so it didn't make that much difference to me. Um, I, I didn't ever have a preference. Yeah, the, the, the hard part about team books is, is what I call ele- elevator problems, is getting everybody off on the same floor. Um, a lot of times, especially if you're not drawing their feet, the characters won't register. So, <laughs> like, this guy's too tall or this guy's too short. And it's like, oh, my God, they're not on the same floor. But there's ways around that, and that's just that's the sort of problem that you can encounter with. Uh, it doesn't have to be a team book. It could be, you know, Superman talking to Perry and Lois. I mean, you can have the same sorts of issues, but it's more pronounced in a team book. Let's get some more questions from you guys. Does anybody have anything? Anything about? Oh, another one. I saw two questions here, so I'll come to. Not both at the same time, because that would be super confusing, but one of you at a time. Uh, what's your name? What's your question? Um, I'm Miriam, and my question is, when it comes to Gambit's character, will he ever take like a lead or a co-lead? Like, what's going on with him, and how did he get developed with his cards? You need to get some writers up here. Yeah. Well, have you guys ever tackled Gambit? Was that... I've never drawn him. Okay. Any, any uh, Gambit he, takes? I think he may have drifted through... Uh, an X-Men issue of mine, but uh, you know, again, as a, as a cameo guy, Lee Weeks did a, did a really neat uh, I think it was a run that was collected into a kind of a trade paperback oh, but this is ages ago really good work your question, though, is what's going on with Gambit, just in general? Right now? Uh, uh, right now. He was just in a title called Mr. and Mrs. X that just ended. That was great by Kelly Thompson. You should definitely check that out. That was uh, he and Rogue suddenly very surprisingly got married. And it shows what happens as they go on their honeymoon. And, of course, they get hijacked in space. And then they come back. And the Thieves Guild attacks them and everything. It's a blast. It's also only 12 issues long, so it's easily readable. Definitely check that out. Mr. and Mrs. X. Yeah, there you go. Uh, I saw a question over here. Did you still have one? What's your name? What's your question? Hi, uh, Carter, longtime reader, first-time caller. Um, so uh, I was torn between a more technical and a fun question. I guess I'll go with the fun question. Um, I'm a sucker for when characters have a lot of variant costumes, a lot of like different outfits and stuff. Um, if there is one Marvel character you could have a pass on to sort of redesign their costume, who would it be? You know, costumes are one of the, my biggest complaints about working in superhero costumes in, in comics. Whenever I have to draw a character I'm not familiar with and I want to look up what they're supposed to look like, every single piece of reference I find on them looks different. Even when it's by the same penciler, <laughs> they're not consistent. They draw a bracelet on them one time and then not the next time where it's on the right arm and it's on the left arm. and. It's all different, and I'm too much of a perfectionist. I want them to look the same every, every time, and it's a really difficult issue. I mean, if it was, if it was me, it's, 
I guess it started in the 90s, all these complicated costumes that uh, looked great on a cover, but then when you had to draw them panel after panel after panel, and it's got little wires going this way and that way, and it's got pouches and buckles and, and chains and, and what have you, I mean, give me Superman's costume, right? So I would just simplify uh, one of the more complex uh, costumes if, if it was up to me. Yeah, and the, the other thing about a lot of the costume design in that era was you'll notice that the the costumes were divided either by either by color or some sort of a pertinence or a belt or a you know a bunch of pouches or something like that along joints like shoulder joints or hip joints um, and that was specifically for merchandising it was for making the toys those are the points of attachment and all that sort of stuff so uh, since you're not seeing that sort of consistency when you're tackling a new character do you create a guidebook or style book for yourself or anything like that I make it consistent, yeah. <laughs> so if anybody else is looking at my stuff for reference, it's going to be the same every time they see it. But I, I just wish everybody else would do that. Actually, a, a costume that have occurred to me uh, that I would like to redesign that I used to work on was Firestorm for DC. Uh, when, I, when I design costumes, when I uh, like to work on characters, I want them... I want to be able to see the anatomy so that it helps me draw the character. So I design costumes that work with their muscles and their body parts um, so that it, it, it makes it easier and faster to draw the figure. Firestorm has these things that don't f uh, show his uh, shoulders. Um, he's got this mask on his head that doesn't show his skull. Um, it just everything about his costume gave me fits when I was trying to draw Firestorm. Well, the, 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 first, the first sketch I was asked to draw today was Havoc, um, which you'd think would be really simple because it's just a guy in a black leotard. But then you start to play with those concentric circles and it turned into a real nightmare. I freely confess. It was like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm still doing this. But yeah, so he, he's, he's a guy, he's one of the guys I, when, I when, when he turns up on the sketch list, I'm like, oh my, please no. Yeah, so when, I, when Joe Orlando told me I needed to go back to school and learn how to draw, when you have costumes, you don't, you don't just start drawing an outline of the costumes. What we do is basically draw a nude figure first and put things onto that nude figure in certain places. So if it's a well-designed costume, that's easy to do. If it's a badly designed costume, God, it just drives you nuts. Did you want to ask your technical question as well? Uh, I mean, it's not too much trouble. No, it's not troubling me at all. I mean, I guess you guys kind of got into it, but in terms of when you're approaching drawing superheroes, what is the biggest technical challenge for you? Um, just in terms of how to get that drawing finished. You want to go first? Um, hmm. Uh, it's a big topic. Um, I'm, I'm going to answer your question by not really answering it, but to say instead that um, every character done right, every character moves differently or stands differently, fights differently. Characters pose Pose, movement, fighting style, these are all elements, properly speaking, of characterization. So, um, you know, I, I, I always go back to the example of Nightwing. Nightwing was, for my, for my money, one of, the most, one, of the, one of the most fruitful or possibly fruitful characters that DC possessed. I mean, still possesses it, but I don't know what they're doing with it. Simply because it was the former... Dick Grayson, the wise wise guy, boy wonder, who had grown up, and but he hadn't lost his wit. He hasn't lost his his attitude and his edge. He could, you know, within the space of one book or one fight fight scene, he could go from being a total wise ass, you know, embarrassing his opponents, to being scary Dark Knight if he wanted to be, you know, as a grown up. 
And I thought, you know, there was enormous range in there for a character like that. And the way, one of the ways you put that across was the way he fought, the, the kinds of things he would, he would do in a fight, and the way he would stand, and the way he would, you know, the way he would pose and cock his head. So these are all, these are all elements you have to be conscious of and, you know, work to put in. Yeah, the thing, the thing is, uh, especially with the way I draw, um, I, I look at people as individuals. So I would never draw Superman flying the same way that I would draw Storm flying or some other flying character. Um, each character moves in their own way, hopefully, and uh, makes them who they are. It's not a stereotype cookie-cutter thing uh, where this is how superheroes move and this is how non-superheroes move. Um, so basically, I just think of them who they are and how would, how would I expect them to move, and I, I just start uh, thinking up uh, poses that to me look like them. Superman's actually kind of tough because there's, there's, not a, there's not a lot of breadth in the way that he can move. He can't, he can't get into weird, awkward positions. He can't, you know, he can't do a Spider-Man. It just wouldn't be him. So he's always standing there sort of statuesque. He's flying in a statuesque way. And it's, you know, he's actually a surprisingly challenging character to take on. I had a lot of fun drawing Superman because he was one of the first superheroes. And um, he's been drawn for decades before I ever got on the book. So when I got on, I wanted to do something different uh, than every other artist had done with him, which we all want to do whenever we do a series. And so every time I would draw Superman flying, I would try to do it, at least in my mind, in a way that I hadn't seen him done before. Either the, the angle I was showing it from, or the pose I was putting him in, or how close up or far away, or just something about it I was trying to be original. Which doesn't mean I was always successful at that, but I was trying to do that. Interesting thematic sidelight to all that. Uh, just something, something else to chew on. Um, the fact that, that Superman, Superman is so staid and statuesque and stereotypical in the way he stands informs stuff he would get up to as Clark Kent. So, in a way, you know, you have to be conscious of that. One of the reasons Clark Kent is such a goof is precisely because he has to be so on all the time as Superman. I know this is the X-Men panel, but we're already here, so let's just go with it. Uh, when you're tackling Superman versus Clark Kent, how do you, how do you change up the physicality but pe- keep the character consistent? Well, again, Superman is a superhero who moves in a certain way as a superhero, whereas Clark Kent is a, just an average guy to me. So I have him move the way I might move, whereas Superman does not move the way I might move. So it's two different people I'm drawing. And of course, there's, there's also the, the, the magic of comic books where no one can possibly tell that <laughs> this guy is this guy, even though it's Even though he's, it's all he's doing is taking his glasses off. Yeah. Um, more questions from you guys? Anything? Anybody? Ooh, there's a hand in the back right over there. We're going to come over to you. Ooh, you're going to come to me. I love it. Yeah, we'll meet each other halfway. I love it. Oh, this is a meet cute. Okay, what's your name? What's your question? All right. Phoenix, uh, thank you guys so much for being here at Keystone. Uh, my question is, do you have any good stories about the X-Mansion, and how many times have you destroyed the Danger Room? Well, the, the Danger Room... In my experience, the Danger Room was, was Chris Claremont's, one of his go-to ways of explaining what everybody's characters were. I mean, that was, that was, him, that was him doing due diligence for the reader, basically. He would stage something in the, in the Danger Room, not because the Danger Room was cool or because we like fight scenes, but because you need to know who the characters were and what their, char- what their powers are. And the, the Danger Room was the, the quick and dirtiest way of doing it. Uh, what, what was the first part of that question? Uh, do you have any interesting stories about the X-Men? Yeah. 
well, ex except it again, I, I couldn't find a consistent reference on where this room was, where that was, how it was outlooked from the outside and everything. So uh, I didn't particularly enjoy drawing the expansion. <laughs> um, the danger room, however, when I got on the New Mutants, I wanted them to stay in school much longer than Chris kept them in school. And I loved the scenes of the danger room and them doing stuff in the danger room uh, because it's a danger room. It's not just a room like this. Anything can happen in that room. Um, it can get really imaginative with it. So I always had fun with the danger room um, and wish I could have done more uh, uh, jobs on regarding that. Yeah, when, when Chris eventually shoved off and went off to D.C. and started Sovereign 7, I don't know whether you're familiar with Sovereign 7 at all, uh, but... Their headquarters was a bar. It was a it was a bar on somewhere upstate on a creek with old, you know. So I actually I actually did him a, a, a three view of the bar, cutaway view, and a floor plan, and gave it to him. I said, "Here, let's do this. As long as we're doing this, let's." Which do is this. what we should always do, right? right. Uh, I'm curious, just to stay on the New Mutants for a second. Um, is there a character that you liked drawing in particular? I have to imagine there must be a certain joy in drawing Cannonball in particular because you draw the top half of his body and then take a little bit of a break. You don't realize how hard all that smoke is to draw. <laughs> is it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you do it well. Okay. Any, anything is hard to draw if you do it well. There's, there's nothing that easy to draw in comics. Um, the great thing about the New Mutants for me is I got to design them. You know, I drew them the way I wanted to draw them instead of the way someone else had designed them and I had to draw them that way. So I had a great time with all of them. Uh, designing them, the, my favorite to design was Cannonball because I was able to give him big ears and make him look uh, like, a, like a different superhero than had ever been before, just a normal guy who, who had these powers. Um, and I actually got criticized for that in the comics journal. They said they were the ugliest team of superheroes they'd ever seen <laughs> because they didn't look like Superman and Wonder Woman. And I was so deliberate. I wanted them to be just like any one of us um, who suddenly had these powers. Um, so I had a great time designing all of them, but uh, probably the most fun with Sam. Uh, I got to say, not to add too much personally, but as a kid reading the book, that's why I was drawn to New Mutants, was seeing characters like Sam in particular who look just normal. They look like regular people. Uh, like so it goes, I was back, able, goes yeah. back to me wanting to draw for Mad Magazine. Yeah. How so? Well, because he's an individual character with you know odd things about uh -huh. his face. He's got a, a big nose and, and big ears. Um, instead of just your your average stereotypical superhero face. Mm. Uh, cool. I think we have time for one, maybe two more questions. I see this hand over here from the guy in the awesome tie-dye shirt. Yes, you sure. Yes. Love the shirt. What's your name? What's your question? Um, yeah, so my, my name is Jim, and um, you guys kind of flirted with this a little bit, but I just wanted to ask you... Um, you know, when it sounds like you guys really care about the art that you do, and you really put yourselves into it. Uh, so, you know, have you ever really been sitting there and drawing a character, and just been like putting yourself into it, your personality, your features, your whatever? And if so, like, what character is it? You know, what character are you that you've worked on in X Men? Great question. I don't draw myself. <laughs> I don't think I'm good at drawing myself, and when I, uh, it's, it's kind of like acting. When I am drawing these characters, I'm projecting myself into them, really, but I'm, I'm trying to be them rather than have them be me. Uh, so I don't really think of it in those terms, I don't think. Yeah, yeah I, think that's, I think that's a pretty good answer. I think we're... We're trying to we're trying to bring them to life as much as possible um, for your benefit, which is why cosplayers should get more respect than they do because they're doing they're in the same line of work. They're essentially they're essentially vivifying the characters for your benefit, and um, 
I, I pointed this out to a cosplayer once and it blew her mind. She was like, <laughs> before, we, before we move on, I want yeah. to ask Rick, um, when you took over the New Mutants, um, well, drew them, so many artists had already been on that series before you. How did you approach um, drawing them? Well, my recollection was uh, that I think the way it read to me, I did, I did, I did that that Sankevich job that I mentioned, and that was that was. Uh, I think I was using more traditional storytelling then. Um, and then the two other, three other fill-ins I did, we were all gaga at the time over the Dark Knight, which had just come out. And everybody was looking at the Dark Knight. We all realized that Frank Miller was using a 16-panel grid. And he was, he, was knocking out, he was knocking out interior lines depending on where the accents on the page were. So he could do four across or he could do one across. He could do two across and big one. This sort of thing. Um, so we're, I was I did at least two of those new mutants with a 16 panel grid, and just structurally doing the architecture. I think was would, occupied most of my time. Um, the biggest thing about the new mutants that I, I really enjoyed was that sense of family that they were a, they were a family in a way that the X Men really had ceased to be that they had recovered a lot of that early family feel that the, that the early X-Men had. So. Um, we only have a couple more minutes here, so I do want to ask you guys one last question before you wrap it up. One of the biggest things about the X-Men throughout the years is that it's a metaphor for something. You know, there's, It's varied from year to year, from writer to writer, exactly what that metaphor is. But seeing as you guys have worked on the titles at various times, what do you see most in the X-Men? What do you take most away from it? I mean, what I like about the X-Men um, is the diversity in the team. Uh, for so long, comics have been white people and uh, the same kinds of white people. And so, uh, and we even tried to take it a step further in Mutants, but the X-Men bring in... Uh, a storm in and a Native American in and a Korean in and all, all, all these different uh, nationalities uh, and ethnicities um, to me I, it just brings it, it makes them uh, more relatable to to the general public um, I've had people tell me you know they, they, they could see themselves for the first time in, in uh, some of the new mutants or the or the x-men so I think that it's just a, it's a great thing that uh, it's going that direction. I think comics are, are just starting to, to, to be as diversified as they should be, um, but it took them a long time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the first, was it, I can't remember which was the, which, in, terms of, in terms of the official score, which was, the, which was the, the first graphic novel, first American graphic novel, whether it was... Jim Starlin's? The death of, death of uh, yeah, death of whatever the character's name is, I can't remember. Captain Marvel. That guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, or um, God Loves, Man Kills, which was the, the Brandon Anderson, Chris Claremont X-Men vehicle. But that was, that was I think, the clearest expli- explication of that X-Men theme that they are, yes, they are different. Um, and, you know, it's, it's up to the rest of us to figure out, you know, how we're going to assess that and whether we're going to be, whether we're going to be prejudiced and whether we're going to, you know, persecute and all that kind of stuff or whether we're going to accept that difference. And, um, you know, I, I, I still think that that theme never gets old and never seems to, uh, never seems to be, uh, there's the necessity of having that theme reinforced to us never seems to go away. So, um, to that extent, I think the X-Men are going to stay relevant forever. Uh, plugs before we go. If people are here at the con, where can they check you out? What, what's your booth number? D2. B2? D2. Yeah. D2. David Chase 2. That's what you need to remember. Yeah, we're on the same aisle. I'm the other end of the aisle, D19. 
All right, there you go. Check that out. Let's give them a big round of applause, everybody. And thank you guys so much for coming out. Enjoy the rest of your con.